everyone, and welcome to another episode of Teeth Matter. I'm your host, Ellie Halabian, DDS, and in today's episode, I've got a dear friend of mine, Dr. Ryan Kulan. He's an incredible, incredible dentist. He is so involved in the dental community. He's been trained through Panky and Spear Academies. He's involved in multiple study clubs across the country. He focuses on cosmetic dentistry, major rehabilitative dentistry, TMJ disorders, sleep disorders, airway prosthodontics. He is a very interesting man who's always, always looking to learn. I can't wait to find out where his passion comes from and how he found his vision in dentistry. I just want to give a little bit of background as to how Ryan and I met because we're new friends. We just met a couple of weeks ago. We actually met in Houston for a continuing education course. And I get to this course and everyone's like, Ryan, Ryan, everyone's shaking his hand. He's like the most popular person there. I was like, who is this guy? <laughs> then I hear that you're like 40, the top 40 under 40 dentists in America. And I was like, I got to know, I got to meet this guy because I want to be like this guy. I need to get to where he is. So we connect, and now he's finally here, and we have so much to talk about. Thank you for being with us. No problem. I'm excited. I mean, 40 under 40 is not just your only accomplishment. Like, you have so many accolades under your belt, and you own multiple practices. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey from being a new dentist to becoming a successful practice owner? If people wanted to take, like, an inside glance into my life and what it took to get to where I was at, I don't know that they would all want it or think that it's that, you know, um, grand because it is a lot of hard work and it's a lot of you know sacrifice and time away from family and things that a lot of people aren't willing to do but for me I luckily I'm in the greatest profession on earth I adore what I do I think it's you know the perfect blend of the art and science it's just this really cool thing that I genuinely wake up excited to go to work every single day and so you know continuing education is fun for me you know meeting people like you at a course is fun for me like I I really just enjoy people. I enjoy life. I enjoy, you know, all that I do. So it kind of, that's the driving force. I think for a lot of people, it would wear them out. People will often ask me, like, how do you do so much in such a short amount of time? Or how do you cram so much into a day? And I'm like, I don't know. I, it's just a normal day for me. Like, if, it's, if I'm having fun and doing the things that give me energy, and then, you know, it doesn't feel like work. It doesn't feel like a lot. It feels... Fun. But I think your question is, tell me a little bit about your journey. So I would say to start out, I'm probably one of those weird people. I'm probably the only person that you'll ever meet that actually got accepted into medical school, law school, and dental school. Really? I didn't know that. You're a triple threat. Yeah. <laughs> so I, 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 or, or really confused, one of the two, you know, like I, I, I really was... Going into college, I, I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. I didn't just want to be an orthopedic surgeon. I wanted to be like the orthopedic surgeon for the Dallas Cowboys. And as I got kind of closer to this goal of going to med school to be an orthopedic surgeon, like I had this thought, like, what if I don't become an orthopedic surgeon for the Dallas Cowboys? What if I'm just like a GP or something? Right. And I hated that idea. And so it made me slow down and think a little bit and just kind of get clear like, okay, is this what I really want? This is going to be a big sacrifice and a lot of time invested into this. I better make sure I really want to do this. So I was on that path, and my dad asked me, 
he said, he said, why don't you go shadow a dentist? And I'm like, a dentist? Oh, I don't know. I'm not being a dentist. <laughs> and so, but I did, I went and shadowed a dentist and it was amazing. The dentist that I talked to along the way loved what they did. They loved their hours. You could tell they genuinely cared about their patients. They weren't like, you know, ripped up by insurance companies mm-hmm. for the most part. They were, you know, this is a while ago. Right. I'm, I'm a little bit older than you, but you know, I know that's starting to shift some, but, but they really weren't bogged down in insurance and notes and all the things that when I talked to them, to the doctors, the medical doctors, mm-hmm. they were just, they hated what they did. They like, they, they questioned whether they would do it again. And it kind of steered me away from medicine and I'm, I'm glad today, but the, how I ended up getting accepted into law school was, so I switched my application. So I'd gotten into medical school and I think, and I was like, okay, if I can get into med school, I'm a lock to get into dental school. Cause I had this thought about dental school that it wasn't as high or lofty as medical school, um, at that time. And come to find out, I made my application and I got waitlisted <laughs> to dental school. And I was like, okay. Oh, okay. And I'm, I was kind of like, you know what, forget that. Maybe I don't, I don't want to do that. I'm going to, so I, I decided on a whim to take the LSAT scored really, really well applied to Loyola law school in New Orleans. Cause that's where I was living at the time and got into Loyola law school right away. And so I'd actually paid a down payment to go, go to Loyola law school and LSU, which is where I ended up going to, to dental school in America, in my opinion, I, I I'm, yeah has a great yeah great reputation. Huge fan of the university, the dental school, their football team, but they decided to expand their class by five slots. So basically, I was the last person accepted in my class because they had like four others on the waiting list, and then basically the dean got to select one person to fill that last slot, and he picked me. And so the rest is his, history. I, I almost didn't become a dentist. What a story. Yeah. So in dental school, I did have moments where I would sit sit in the room and I just had this feeling like I'm just not like the rest of you. Like I felt like I was in the wrong place because my brain and the way I would think about things just went to different things than, than just, you know, um, the typical person sitting next to me. I would lean over to my classmates and they were like, what are you mm-hmm. talking about? You know what I mean? Like, they just weren't thinking the same things I was thinking. You know, I would see some of these procedures and I'm going, how would, how are you going to talk to a patient about doing this? Like you see this crazy surgery. It's like, how do you get patients to do that? And they're like, what do you mean? They just do it because you're the doctor. And I'm going, I don't don't think they do. (laughs) And so I was even like from the beginning asking a bunch of questions that weren't the typical student in the box, I just knew that I was always constantly fighting to get outside of the box. I just was thinking differently than everybody else. And, um, I do have a really entrepreneurial, I think spirit or, you know, my dad's super entrepreneurial. So I never even thought that I would work for somebody else. I didn't even have that thought in my mind. I knew that I was going to go to dental school and buy a practice. And so, uh, you know, long story short, that's exactly what I did. The, the, the year I graduated dental school, I, I kind of started looking for practices in, in Midland because at the time my wife was pregnant and I thought I wanted to stay in New Orleans, but I decided, nope, I don't want to raise kids in New Orleans. And so I kind of decided to go home. And so I started looking at practices and dentists that might be getting to that age where they would want to retire and 
step away and I found a really great practice. Um, she was actually a prosthodontist and basically she kind of showed me the ropes. We, we told the team that this was happening together, that her team had no idea. And two weeks later she walked wow. out of the door and I was on my own. Wow. And so I know that's kind of scary and seems kind of crazy for a lot of people, but for me, I knew that I needed to sink or swim. I needed to, you know, just throw me in the deep end and let me figure it out. Cause that's really the only way that I learn. I have to get my hands on it. I have to get thrown in the deep end to, to really figure out what it's all about. Like looking back, I'm going like, that is nuts. Like that's these people like fought alongside of you. I couldn't imagine doing something like that and just surprising my team with it one day. They would literally kill me. Yeah. Like they would hunt me down and kill me. Like this seems so bizarre, but this was the, this was actually the advice that was given to the doctor by the the group that she was using for the sale of practice. Okay, interesting. Because, I mean, everyone looks to the dentist as a leader so that you would anticipate some kind of easy transition. But, I mean, we'll get into questions about leadership and how you kind of motivate a team and how you manage a team. But you not only just bought this first practice, you went on to buy a second practice, right, soon after. Yeah, so let me just back up. So she leaves. I don't really have any clue what I'm doing. Other than I know that I'm going to figure it out and I'm, you know, a decent enough dentist. I feel like my hand skills were always good. And I was like, I can, I can do the dentistry. I just got to figure out the, the business and running a practice and having a team. And, and, and it actually went reasonably well. Like we actually increased production in the first year compared to the, to the older dentist. Now she was sort of slowing down a little bit. Right. But but by all standards or metrics, it was like a success. Like everything was going really, really well. But I'll tell you, I was probably one year into practice and I had doubts again. I really started to question whether or not I did the right thing because obviously I had lots of choices, you know, to start with, whether it was going to be med school, law school. And I really started to just be a little bit unsure as to whether I made the right decision and was kind of feeling the weight of like, man, I... I'm not enjoying this drill and fill patients, you know, only want to do what the insurance covers. Like I was feeling that and I was like, this sucks. Like, I I don't know that this is for me. I don't know how long I'll do this. And I went to a Seattle study club. So I was already kind of involved in more local CE at that time because I was like, okay, I know there's a lot of things I need to improve and learn. And there was a, a, a lady by the name of Allison Watts and she had the best pros practice in Midland. And she was known for, you know, her quality. She did TMD and oral facial pain. She was just, she was, a, she was awesome. She was a, the best dentist in our city, for sure. Like, everybody sort of knew it. And so I see her there, and I have never met her before. I walked straight up to her and was like, I want you to teach me everything you know about dentistry. And she goes, <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, can you, can you tell me a little bit more? And, like, Looking back, I'm like, oh, how naive was that? Like knowing what she knows and how long it would take to get to that. But she didn't. She didn't like embarrass me or make me feel stupid. She just was like, sure, what what do you want to know? I go, and it was just the only thing that I had in my brain. I was like, I want to really, I want to know how to do veneer temps. Like I have, like, you know, they, you sort of know what a veneer is. You think you can pull it off, but you're like, God, how do you get the veneer temps to stay on? And I think I had just done a little veneer case and they were popping off like every other day. You know what I mean? Like, so... I thought if I could just know how to make veneer temps like she did, then all my problems would be solved and I'd be a great cosmetic dentist one day, you know? But she said, call my office on Monday, find out when I'm doing, doing veneers next, 
and have them schedule you to be there. And you can watch everything that I do. And so I did that. And I did that a couple of more times on some different procedures. Just her and I really clicked. And I could tell she was going to be someone that could be a mentor for me. And we were talking one day and she said, man, I, I hate that you just bought a practice. I wish somebody like you would come along. I want to sell my practice. And I was like, wait, what? Because she was like 46 at the time, like was not what you'd think of as a dentist ready to retire. She was like in the prime of her career. And I was like, wait, you want, why are you, you're selling your practice? And she said, yeah, she's, she does some coaching and consulting now. Um, but she also had some neck stuff and just was ready to leave clinical practice. Like she'd, you know, come to find out, done a lot of things already and was just ready to move on. And I was like, I don't know anybody else that wants to buy your practice, but I want to buy your practice. Interesting. And she's like, Ryan, but you just bought a practice. I go, okay, details. I'm making this happen. Wow. And so like, I, I, like it was such a good fit and I knew that that that's where I was supposed to be that I didn't, I didn't work out all the details of exactly how I was going to do it in that moment. But I said, I'd like to pursue this with you a little bit more. And so my second year out of dental school, I bought my second practice Incredible. and started a three year like mentorship slash, but I was the owner of the practice from day one. I knew I never, you hear, I heard all these, you know, um, horror stories about young dentists getting screwed over by the older doc for five years and then, you know, them not letting them buy in at the end of the day. And I'd heard enough of that where I was like, I'm never doing that, which I think that's looking back, that's a little probably naive, but it was also my mindset going into those conversations. And so even though everybody else just thought that I joined Allison's practice and I, and I was fine having it look like that for three years, I owned that second practice from day one. And so she was my associate, but it didn't look like it because I spent a lot of, a lot of days in that operatory with her watching her do, do these big cases. And so I wasn't, I wasn't into the immediate gratification. Like, Oh my gosh, I've got to produce now. I have to have money now. I was able to kind of delay that gratification knowing that if I had the opportunity to learn from one of the best dentists on the planet, then I was going to sit underneath her and really see how she did the things that she did. And so I did, I kind of sacrificed and had to, you know, not, not live outside of my means for, you know, for a couple of years because I was doing a lot of continuing education, spending, you know, a hundred thousand, 200,000 one year in continuing education on top of not going full bore trying to produce in the practice, but spending a lot of days watching another dentist do dentistry. Um, so I can remember those days being, knowing that I could be doing more, but I knew that that was short-sighted. I was, I was seeing the, the bigger picture or the long vision of what I might get out of that type of relationship. So I bought my second practice in year two. I brought an associate into the first practice. And so that started my like, okay, I've got a, I've got now I'm now I'm managing and running two practices. And, um, so I guess at that time I had already two practices and two associates in my second year out of dental school. And I feel like it only sped up from there. It didn't slow down. And when you kind of start off with that quick, either you kind of peter out or crash and burn or you, or you do, you pick up speed and you get momentum and you start to, to stack even more on top of that. So 
it sounds like you kind of also had a great opportunity. Like it was kind of lined up for you. You met someone who was very welcoming, very you know, understanding, was a great mentor. A lot of people don't really have that opportunity. And, you know, her wanting to exit was a great way for you to, you know, gain entry. But for those who are looking yeah. to buy and they don't have things set up, what are, yeah. how do they identify whether it's a good opportunity? How do they identify whether, whether buying this practice is a viable option? What are some things they need to look at? The only thing I'll clean up as to what you just said is that sometimes that lines up and it gets lined up. I don't, I don't believe in luck. I believe you create your own luck. So I, I still like had to come outside of my comfort zone and go to her and just say, hey, I want to learn right. from you. So, so the, I, 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 if, if I'm talking to young dentists, I don't think that these opportunities are just going to land in your lap. Right. You have to be thinking strategically. You have to be looking for these types of opportunities. The worst thing she could have told me was no. Mm. Okay, moving on. So that I, I would encourage any young dentist listening, find someone that, that inspires you. Find someone that you think is a really good dentist that you think you could learn from. And go beat down their door and, and, and annoy them until they let you come learn with them. Because what you're going to find is probably more openness and generosity and learning than you really, than you could imagine. Like, like she could have been like, I'm, I do the cosmetic dentistry in Midland. I'm not going to share all my secrets with right. you. She had zero scarcity. It was just maximizing the generosity of the gift of learning. And she wanted to give that gift freely. And I think that a lot of good dentists, I think more people are like that than not. Okay. So don't wait for that opportunity to jump in your lap. Go go jump in its lap and and put yourself out there. Yeah, it, Yes, it's going to be a little scary. Put yourself out there. What's the worst thing that can happen? Okay. They tell you no or they blow you off or, oh, okay, go moving on. So I would say go, go chase go chase those things. And what was the second question you asked me? Right. How do you evaluate, like, whether it's a good practice to buy into or purchase? So I kind of taught myself practice valuation, and I kind of did it um, just on my own in, in, in kind of a way that made sense to me. Because if you talk to 10 different, and this is me knowing things now, if you talk to 10 different practice consultant or transition people, you'd probably get 10 different opinions on 10 different practices. One would say, oh, no, this is definitely the best practice. And another would say, no way, that's, you don't want to do that. You should do this. In fact, the, one of the consultants that I used to buy Allison's practice told me that was a stupid mistake. It was a big mistake. I was wasting my money. I should not. Ha- I, and he had this other practice. It was, a, it was the same dollar amount, right. but it had way more patience. Um, he liked the numbers of this practice better, let's just okay. say. And it's fair. It, it, he doesn't know what my vision for what I want to do in dentistry looks like. They're just looking at some numbers, some metrics. So I will caution anybody that's looking at practice evaluation. Now, if it's all things considered equal, you like them all equally, then I would say, yeah, let's let's dive into the metrics and and try to really figure out like how much dentistry is left to do in the practice. Like, you know, what are, what are the new patient numbers looking like like there's lots of really good numbers and analytics to to comb through and, and that is helpful i'm not saying ignore that but what i'll say i my recommendation would be would be to like elevate the fit of the practice for you above the metrics of the practice 
you can always work out a deal. Like, I mean, dental practices sell for what they sell for. You're not going to, you're not going to rip someone off and you're not going to ever get a total steal. You know, it can happen rarely, but you're, everybody knows what practices are worth. If you know, you're, you're going to eventually look at, you know, tax returns and you're going to know what this practice is taking home. And there's going to be some percentage of that that you're going to negotiate to sell a practice for. It, it's as easy as that. It, it, we don't need to overcomplicate it. But what I do think we should spend more time diving into is what does the values fit? What are you diving into? It just so happened that the way I internally believed about patients and how I was miserable in that drill and fill practice with patients asking me about insurance, we this this other practice kind of helped me see what's possible, that it wasn't about what insurance would pay. In fact, insurance sucks. Like insurance is not not your friend. They're not trying to help you. They're literally in the way of you and your patient getting the most optimum outcome possible. And if you could partner with your patients and create trust, it doesn't matter what insurance says. I, You know, Allison taught me this in the beginning. I see it all the time. I saw it today. It was crazy. Even when they're talking about money, I tell young dentists all the time, it's never about the money. It's not about the money. People pay for what they want. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the craziest story I can think of to, to highlight that is when I, in that first year of practice, I remember there was a family, they had like a 13 year old kid. He needed a ton of like, he just had decay everywhere. And I'm like this, if he doesn't do something, he's going to be in trouble in terms of keeping his teeth the rest of his life. Like he was just in a bad spot and they were just, I gave him the treatment plan and it was just a cleanup treatment plan. It wasn't anything crazy, but they were just like, ah, oh, it's just too much. We can't do it. And I felt bad. And I'm like, do I give this away? Like, I feel for this kid. Like, you know, I had all those thoughts that we all have sometimes. But the the neatest thing happened. Like, a week later, I think they decided to think on it. And they were just like, I just think it's too much. I don't think we're going to do it. And I'm like, well, what are you going to do? This kid's got a mouthful of cavities. Like, you got to do something. I went to Best Buy. And I saw this family in Best Buy. And I kid you not, they had a cart loaded with everything you can find in Best Buy. Oh my God. And in that moment, I was like, it's not about the money. I didn't have judgment about what they're choosing to spend their money on. I didn't think like, what bad parents, what, what I took from that was I didn't do a good enough job. It was good. Like why it was beneficial to them. Right. Why it mattered. If I help them see what's possible and present that in a way that's, that's, you know, we're going to help you get to this place. People pay for what they want. Yeah. So it's a need versus want thing. Like I, I, I had to get outside of this need needs based thinking and, and really dive into what does each individual person coming into my office want from me, from this relationship, from their dentist, from their from the person that's going to be helping them try to keep their teeth the rest of their life. Right. And it kind of unlocked the doors for me. I can remember as a young dentist, I wouldn't even be getting to the other side of the mouth and. I'm talking about possibly doing a crown and they're like, well, my insurance cover that. And how much is that going to be? And they're, you know, they're just, it's this weird dynamic. And now I could be doing, talking about doing a full mouth rehab and I'm in appointment two of the new patient experience, which is like our three of us talking about what dentistry we're going to do. And we're all the way at the end and they're super excited to do it. And I have to bring it up. I have to stop them and say, I know we're getting really excited about this, but do you know what something like this might cost? I have to ask the question. Interesting. And that's really, really cool to be able to, and they go, oh, yeah, I guess I do need to know, but I'm doing it. 
And I'm like, I'm not saying you're not doing it, but these are the, my daily conversations now. But I had to, I had to shift some some wiring and some beliefs in my own brain first, and then start to implement a new patient experience that actually helped that patient go on a journey, and help them figure out what's happening in their mouth and get clear about what they want for their health. And when you're a part of something like that, that's cool. That's that's when you get to the point where you just treat your friends. You're treating people that you enjoy being with, that enjoy you, that are grateful. They pay with gratitude. They're not, you know, it's it's a really fun place and fun fun way to do dentistry and practice. So there's a billion things I can say about that, but I'm gonna hold off and see if we can kind of get further down the road that where you want to go. Ellie. No, I was gonna ask you if you can elaborate on the new patient experience because clearly, like when it comes to teaching people about treatment you have to be able to read the patient. You have to be able to connect with the patient. And that's a missing component in a lot of our relationships. Like a lot of dentists, like you said, struggle with that. So tell me what an experience, how do you turn on that switch? So besides being a practice owner and doing the thing, I'm, I'm the CEO of Inspiro, which is a coaching and consulting group that does a lot of uh, continuing education inside of dentistry, but it's not on, it's on the non-clinical side of things. So the new patient experience is actually another workshop that Inspiro does. So it's a really specific methodology for how to bring new patients into the practice. Okay. So it starts with mindset, beliefs, kind of what you need to become to be this type of dentist. It's based on co-discovery, which is a concept that was created by Bob Barkley back in the 70s, believe it or not. He was a phenomenal dentist that we actually lost way too soon. He died in a, in a plane crash. But he was like a rock star at, at, in his time in dentistry. And he was actually one of the pioneers of preventative dentistry as well. But he practiced in a little town in Macomb, Illinois. And he was trained with, he trained with L.D. Pankey down at um, the Pankey Institute. And he went back to Macomb, Illinois. And he was all excited to do this great dentistry he learned how to do. And this little farm community looked at him like he had three heads. And in that moment, he realized, if I'm ever going to do the dentistry that I'm capable of doing and really help people... I've got to think about education differently. We can't think about patient education like they taught it to us in dental school because that is not education and it does not work. Tell, show, do is the worst way to learn anything. What we try to talk, what we try to teach teams, so we don't just say, hey, dentists, come take this course. It's like you said, it's worthless. Dentistry is a team sport. You've got to bring your your what we call HRC health relationship coordinator. You got to bring your assistant, your hygienist, because you got to bring your administrators. Everybody has a role to play in the new patient experience. It starts potentially with your website and how what does your website look like? And they're going to pick up the phone and how is that interaction? So you, if you're not building trust every step along the way, every person that they you know, if they go to the to the dental chair to get their you know maybe their molds or their X-rays and the person is not listening to them and and looks like they've had a terrible day and their whole you know it can it can erode the whole all the trust that was created in that initial conversation so it is a team approach um so i i think that to actually have a new patient experience in your office you got to think about it but maybe also get some help find somebody who's got a really good new patient experience or find a course like we we do and and really see if it's a fit there's going to be some things that aren't a perfect fit for your practice, right? I'm not trying to create a bunch of practices like mine. I think there's principles inside of it that shouldn't be violated. There's there's simple things like when you when you greet a patient, even if you meet them in the operatory, which is not my favorite space, 
that's the danger space. That's scary. There's sharp objects. Like, think about it from a psychological perspective. Like, we're, we're, we want to build trust. Typically, we lean the patient back. We ask them to open their mouth so that we can look in one of the most intimate spaces in their whole entire body, invade that space with sharp instruments and goofy glasses that we stare down and shine the light in their face, and we put a mammal on their back, which belly up is the most vulnerable position for any mammal. So we do everything exactly wrong in terms of creating trust. How, how, can, we, how can we create trust putting a mammal on their back, asking them to open their mouth, you know, jamming sharp instruments in there and not telling them what's going on? It's silly when you think about it that way. And it doesn't work. It's not effective. You, you have to have some starting place for what are the principles that help build trust. So like I said, you don't have to do your new patient experience exactly like I do, but you, you, you might want to have some of those principles in place so that you can help actually build trust. So in terms of that piece, I would say there are courses on the behavioral or softer side of dentistry, and we do a lot of those. So you can check out Inspiro. There's, there's a few other uh, people in dentistry that are doing a pretty good job with that side of things as well. But you got to find somebody that you trust to, to kind of start on that journey. So I would recommend emotional intelligence first. Start to build and create the person that you want to be as a dentist. Take your team or at least take yourself and check out the new patient experience to start to get a vision for how do I want to bring patients into a practice? How do I build trust? Um, Ryan, you're clearly talking like someone with experience. It's proven that you have plenty of wisdom. You've gone through a lot. And in the process, you've built a community. You have a lot of, you, I'm sure you have a huge network and you've come across a lot of younger dentists. What is, what is a common characteristic of some of the younger dentists that you see today? I know lots of young dentists at this point. And one of the things I see is this like huge imposter syndrome. You get out of dental school and you've got all this debt and they're calling you a doctor now, but you're, you've realized, I don't know shit. I, I really don't. And yet I'm supposed to pretend like I do. So you get this psychological thing that's really like it's imposter syndrome. And so you have to put on a front of this really professional, put-together human who doesn't make mistakes, which that's all young dentists do is make mistakes, right? But it, it, it kind of psychologically screws you up a little bit. And so um, one of the things that I think is, is really important is to do some work on yourself. Right when you get out of dental school, like try to try to fight your way through the box that they've put you in because they they because of your training, because of the programs that you were involved with. There's a reason that they want you to keep patients safe and check every box and dehumanize things a little bit. I understand why in education it has to be that way a little bit, but I can tell you it's not going to serve you long term. You've got to come back to bringing humanity back to what you do. You're doing dentistry with people and on people. Mm-hmm. If you were doing it on typodonts, it wouldn't matter. Right. But when you're doing it on people, you have to bring humanity back. And you have to almost bring humanity back to yourself first. And kindness back to yourself first. And self-love back to yourself. Because how hard are dentists on, on, on themselves? Oh, really hard. Why, why is our profession riddled with depression, burnout, you know, anxiety, like... Because we're hard on ourselves. We're, we're, we, we have to be at the top of the class. We have to make no mistakes. And the reality is you're going to make mistakes. If you're doing anything that matters, if you're doing anything that's going to be big, 
you're going to make some mistakes. It's how you deal with those mistakes and how you grow and learn through them that's going to make the difference. And it'd be nice to have a, a trusting relationship on board if and when those mistakes happen. You know, patients are understanding when you when they don't feel like they're being lied to, but when they feel like they they got somebody that's wearing a mask or not really showing their true them, their true selves, that's when they start getting nervous and they start feeling like, oh, there's no trust here. But I, I, it's it's amazing the times that I've told patients like, hey, you know, I I, I gotta let you know, I, I know we just did this crown. And I did it, but I just don't like the way that margin looks. And they're like, oh my gosh, like, I can't believe, like, it won't cost you anything to redo this, but it, but you will have to come in and have me redo it. Patients are never mad at me when I don't execute something perfectly. What I think they appreciate is honesty, and I think they appreciate that, that I'm always going to give them the truth, and I'm going to give them as close to what they're asking me to help them do, and not trying to sell them a bunch of stuff. Patients appreciate honesty from the dentist, and the dentist obviously has a huge role in kind of leading them towards their treatment and their journey. But it's also a function of the group, right? They have dental assistants, you have a hygienist, you have your front desk. It's a community of people that make that experience amazing, you know? So Exactly. You have now two practices, right? You have all of these people within the practice, What's your approach to hiring people to make sure that you create that kind of experience? I'll give you some of the little nuggets of things that I've learned along the way. One of my favorites is I fire fast and hire slow. I love that. So (laughs) It's exactly like it sounds. I've I've worked with lots of teams. I've, I've had lots of employees come and go. Man, I've never run into somebody that goes, man, I just wish I would have waited a little longer. What do they always say? When you finally have the, you know, you finally have had enough and you finally let that person go and the rest of the office goes, oh, thank God. And they can breathe again. And it's so much better to show up to work again all of a sudden. Everybody always says, man, I wish I would have done that sooner. So fire fast. If you have a core values clash, if you have a fit, that somebody that's just resonating at a different frequency than everybody else, it's going to throw your recipe off. You just have to say, look, this isn't a fit. And it doesn't have to be mean. It's not that I want to go firing people. In fact, I call it freeing up their future. I want to be kind to them too. They're, they're never going to fit in that environment. They, they need to go find something that's a better fit for them. So fire fast, hire slow. Now, one of the ways I avoid having to do that as much is what's, what I call values-based hiring. I'm hiring for the person. I'm training for the skill. I, in fact, a lot of times, your your 15 years of experience, not only does it not impress me, sometimes it makes me nervous. Interesting. Because sometimes it's harder to unlearn bad habits than it is to learn all all from scratch. I never thought about it like that. Now, all things considered equal, you have an amazing human with a value set that's similar to yours and they have 15 years of experience. Yeah, I'll probably take the 15 years of experience. But I, that's not how I think about hiring. I, I, I want to ask values-based questions during the interview process. Um, so, so that might be something like, you know, tell me about the last book that you read. And if they're like, oh, I don't, I don't really read. Maybe they're not avid readers. But, but for our practice, growth, personal growth and growth and development is such a big thing that we all do probably not going to be a good fit. I don't know that they're going to have that that value for growth and learning. So I'm trying to ask questions that are getting to the heart of what values do they have 
And are they a fit for our practice? Because if that person's not a good fit on a values level, it's going to be really, really challenging at some point. And it's just a matter of time before it all implodes or um, it, it, just, it just makes it a lot tougher. So I'm looking for values fits. And so I'm trying to identify core values that people have that are similar to our practice. And then from there, I'm finding out, okay, do they know anything about dentistry? Have they done this role? Will they, will they be successful in this particular you know, role that we, we've carved out for them that, we, that we're hiring for? So values-based hiring is a huge piece. Um, we do some like personality profiling and things like that. I think they can be helpful, but I think they're actually more helpful down the road once they're in the practice about helping them get to know themselves and, and figure out what makes them tick mm-hmm. and, and, you know, understanding how other people communicate. Right. And same thing with patients. I think the better you understand like your personality and how you like to be communicated with, it can help you identify other people like you. And so you're like, Oh, I know how they like to be communicated with. I'm just like that. So I think it's more helpful for like development rather than hiring. And all these people sell these things as hiring tools. And to me, they're more growth and development tools. You got to figure out some way to get to the heart of what are their value system. The other thing that I do that's, once again, I'm going to live outside the box because that's what I do. My team does most of the hiring. And what I mean by that is we've got somebody in the practice that handles most of the initial phone calls. So in other words, just it's just a screening. It's like the preclinical interview. Are they even remotely qualified to be in our office? Is, is this a no-go or should we bring them in just to meet them? And so I'll have somebody do that. Then we'll bring them into the office, have them meet a few people, just get to see how they interact one-on-one, just a quick visit. And then if we really, really enjoy them, how they present to the office, how they interact with the people that they get to meet in the office, then the team will decide, hey, we'd like to bring them in for a working interview. And sometimes that's a day. Sometimes it's two days. Sometimes we bring them in a couple times and we say, we're still not sure. Let's bring them in again. So this is the hiring slow part. I am not in a hurry. And the crazy thing is that I used to think, oh my gosh, my team's going to hate me for hiring slow. But the reality is, what does that mean for the team member? If we're hiring slow and making sure that we get the right fit. Think about if you're like on a on a eight passenger van and you're, you're just going to pick up anybody on the side of the road or you want to pick, pick up somebody that you're going to enjoy. Like they're getting stuck with these people more than the dentist did. You know what I mean? Like if they get a say and they get some, um, they actually get a say in who the practice is hiring. That's empowering. It feels really good and it protects a culture. So if you've got a really good culture that doesn't triangulate and there's no back talking and like you know you don't have the the gossip mill going 24 7 you you protect that you don't want to bring people in that you think are going to do that so if you bring somebody in for a working interview and in the first three hours already talking about what somebody else did and you're going ain't ain't no way we're not hiring them you can forget about it it's done you've you've like we don't do that in this practice and the only way that you continue to not do that is you got to hire people that have similar value system. You don't want to hire people that that feel the need to gossip and make other people look bad so that they look good. Um, you know, once again, it's gonna it's gonna really just poison the well in terms of your culture. So hiring is important. You got to hire the right people. You got to hire values that are aligned with the practice. Um, 
we, we just happen to do more of a team approach to that process to make sure that the team approves first. And if the team says, hey, this person's great, I think we should hire them. Then they, then they sit with me. So think about like how much, how, how, um, how filtered these candidates are at that point. I'm just checking off and making sure that my team did a good job and didn't miss anything or that my gut doesn't tell me something different. And then, you know, I've had times where I've hired people that I had a little still gut check on and the team really liked them and it's worked out great. And I've had times where I've done that and it didn't work out great. And so there's still no exact science to, to this. You're going to be trusting your gut. You're going to have to have some sort of a process and look, people lie. <laughs> it's a honeymoon thing. People are trying to, they're trying to look good, but it's okay if they're reciting things off my website or, you know, doing research into who we are. To me, that's, that's, that's a go-getter. That's somebody that I want to hire. I don't take away points for that. I give points for that. I think I mentioned the no triangulation. Um, it's basically gossiping. Um, you, you, we, we really just, we don't, we don't have that in our office because it's not allowed. So if you're new, you may have the tendency, maybe you're struggling with another team member, right? And you legitimately are venting or just wanting some advice in our office. If you, if, you know, if I come to you and say, Hey, Kylie, can you believe what she did? She didn't even, you know, like if I started talking like that to you in our office, you'd say, Oh man, Ryan, that, 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 that sounds awful. Like, have you talked to her about that? You, you would just turn me directly away. And, and I'd go, and it would trigger me to go, Oh, Oh, I'm yeah. I do. I need to go talk to her. Thank you so much for helping me. The only other thing that you might do is you might say, do you feel ready to have that conversation or do you, would you like some coaching? So I'm fine with my team coaching each other on how to go have that conversation with their team member. But we're not going to have two people participating in gossip or triangulation because it's going gonna, it's, it's gonna to poison the well. And once that happens, it becomes an unsafe place to work. So what I hope my team feels with the team-based hiring, values-based hiring, the no triangulation, is that they feel safe. It's a place that I can speak my truth. It's a place that I can be myself and not worry that people are going to be talking about me, you know, behind my back. Right. If there's a low trust environment, how do then you, how do you, how do you throw patients into the middle of this low trust environment where everybody talks behind each other's backs and somehow project this high trust team? It can't, it'll fall apart. The humans are hardwired that we have bullshit detectors that are scanning the environment for incongruence. That's going to pick up right away. They're not going to know exactly what's going on, but they're going to walk in the room and know, ooh, somebody's not happy with somebody. And that immediately puts their senses on high alert for danger. But when they walk in and they go, these people genuinely care about each other. This is an amazing place. You start to, you start to, to release all the other high trust hormones like oxytocin and you 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 sense this as a as a place where you can own your truth and you can take responsibility for your health as opposed to saying you know i just have bad teeth i've always had bad teeth you know what i mean like no people aren't going to take responsibility and be accountable for their role in things if it doesn't feel safe if they feel like they're going to get slammed and ask the you know, the, the, the question I hate the most in all of dentistry is, is do you floss? 
it's the it's just the most offensive shame and guilt producing question we could possibly ask people and people get really uh, upset with me when i say that they're like well wh- well how do you find out what th-? i go well I, I would ask them can you tell me what you currently do to take care of your mouth like what what, what do you do at home between between visits i see you every six months what are you doing on a regular basis to take care of your teeth now it's an open-ended question. There's no, there's no judgment attached to it. Do you floss? Like, they're going to say yes, and we know it's a lie because statistically, I saw the statistic, 7% of our patients floss. 7%. 7 Why are we spending so much time asking do you floss and showing people how to floss if they're not going to do it? And for the record, I'm not opposed to flossing. I think flossing is really good. Um... There are some things that it can't do below the gums, and we know that based on lots of good studies. But think about it. I want effective care for my patients. I want these things to actually work. And if most of my patients aren't flossing, I'm, I'm certainly not going to start the conversation I would do you floss. That just produces shame and guilt. They feel wrong and bad, and that's not a space to create and, and make you know, the best decisions for what you want for your, the future of your health kind of put you in a shame cycle you're absolutely right like you want a judge judgment free environment that really comes down to the way you interact with the patients and like you said if there's love between or care between your team members or your employees then the patient will feel like they too are going to receive that same tenderness and care and and respect so it allows them to open up and trust you and and continue to to come for their visits and and make their appointments just as natural as that. It's a very simple thing to do. Care, right? But it seems like it's very difficult for a lot of offices to to ma- manage or handle because like I work in an office right now and there's a lot of pointing fingers. And now we're taking on, we're hiring new. So now everything that you just said, I'm going to practice. I'm going to practice what you preach. Hopefully we can change the culture because that's my goal. Can I? Let me ask you a question. I get this a lot and I think it's important. People don't understand culture. What is culture? First of all, what do you, what do you, what, how would you define culture? I think cultures are a set of values and behaviors. So I, I, I agree 100%. To me, I, I think a culture is what you actually do. Why do you do it? From what you believe, what your values are, and then what you do is the actual behavior, the action is attached to it. You live your values. So it's, what's, it's what shows up. The culture is just what's already there. It drives me nuts when people talk about you know, you have to create this culture. Well, you can't just write a culture statement and say, you know, do this, be this. You have to actually create something um, that helps point your team to what this even looks like. You have to have a specific, like, like a philosophy mm-hmm. of practice. You have to have some core values that you all commonly agree to. Like there's got to be some something that creates the culture. The culture is more of the result. If you focus on the culture, you're dead in the water. But if you focus on like thinking about how you can hire and, and it's probably going to be a net total sum good for the culture, hire. As opposed to picking somebody who's totally not that way. So it, it's just one of those things. It's, it's, you, if you focus on the culture too much... You're probably not going to have the culture that you you're thinking you want. 
But if you focus on the core values and you focus on the things that create the culture, then all of a sudden you'll wake up when you're day and like, man, this place is really cool. Yeah. <laughs> I like, I like showing up to work. Today. Yeah. That's my goal. And I'm going to, I'm going to apply everything you just said. Yeah. I just don't know that you pick your culture and say, I'm going to, I want this type of culture. I think it's sort of a byproduct of the, of the collection of the human beings and, and the value system and the behaviors, like you mm-hmm. said, that execute them on a daily basis. And it's an active effort. It's not like, oh, you can just pick a culture and apply it. It's not like you're, you're picking an item out. No, it's not at all like that. It takes active effort, active communication, active leadership, and it's a, not a one-person job. It's the job of the entire team. So each person has to work on it individually in exactly. order to promote the greater good. So it's a process. So I'm trying to get everyone on the wheel there. So... Yeah, so that's what I'm going through. But you mentioned all of these accomplishments, getting a good team, all of these little bits that allowed you to get to where you are. I'm sure in the process of getting to where you are, you've also had a lot of setbacks. Can you tell me how you maybe overcame or some lessons from these setbacks? Yeah, man. I, you you got to get really good at failing fast. One of my favorite, favorite authors is Seth Godin. He talks about failing fast. Because the sooner you fail, the faster you learn. And sometimes we're so like, obviously there's scenario like like as dentists we don't want to we don't want to be going past our area of expertise or outside of our comfort zone on patients, right? We don't want to be doing surgeries and things that we have no business doing. I'm not saying fail that way. I'm saying when you're doing things that matter, you 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 have to you're not going to get it exactly right the first time. And you have to get really, really good at failure because you're not going to try to fail, but it's going to happen. And when it does happen, it can either send you into a downward spiral of shame and guilt and I'm not good enough. And oh my gosh, this is never going to work. Like it can, it can cause that, or you can learn to create a culture of accountability that says, yeah, we screwed up. Let's get, let's, let's get this figured out. As a team, you talk about it. We do something in our office called a blameless autopsy. So if if we have a situation that comes up, say a patient's upset, we say, okay, we'd like to, we'd like to debrief this in a team meeting and do a blameless autopsy. What that means is there's not going to be judgment. There's not going to be, you should have said this, you should have done that. It's a blameless autopsy that looks at what did we do? What actually happened in this situation? What agreements did we not follow? Like, where did, you know, how did this patient get dropped? How did we forget to, you know, to get this appointment scheduled? Or, you know, like we, we look at generally what happened in a blameless, completely free of judgment setting so that we can all learn from it. And when you can do that and you create a culture where you don't just like degrade people when they make mistakes, I, I, there's a difference between, to me, between not being prepared you can always be prepared. I, that'll never be acceptable for me for you to do something and make a mistake because you weren't prepared. But if you're prepared and you make a fat, like a, like a full speed mistake, that's just a mistake. We're going to say no big deal. Yeah. Let's, let's, okay. You handed me the, the glycerin instead of the bond. That's a problem. We're going to have to start over the bonding steps. It's all good. Let's talk about, let's talk about this later. You know, let's talk about like, you know, the, the bonding steps again, because we need to really get this right. And this matters, but I'm not going to, you know, make them feel bad in front of a patient. Or, they, they feel bad enough. And so I feel like I've, I've made just about every mistake under the sun. Um, one of the, 
one of the biggest ones for me personally is I'm a visionary. So I'm, I'm always living five to 10 years into the future and I'm go, go, go. I got a high capacity, like, like because of my story, because of kind of where I come from, like I love what I do and I'm just like, boom, gone. The problem is I occasionally I'll be like, I'll look at around and I'm all by myself, not literally, but you know, figuratively, like I'm, I'm way out here. Nobody's with me and everybody else is tired. And so I think one of the biggest lessons I've learned is that, you know, and it's an African proverb that just rocks my, rocks my soul every time I see it. And I have, thankfully I have people on my team that can help me, help bring, help me bring me that back to that. And the, 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 the proverb says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And so for me as a leader, I have to constantly be circling back and, and making sure that I'm not losing contact with the rest of the group. That's my job is to go, you know, pioneer, go out ahead, figure out where we're going next. And my team trusts me to do that. But when I get so far out there that I can't even hear it or see the rest of the group, we're not going anywhere. In fact, I, I get back and things are scattered. And so one of the things I, I would encourage all dental owners and dentists and teams to do is, is to whoever that visionary is, make sure that you're, you're not getting too far out in front. You know, our job as leaders and visionaries is to, is to help, you know, it's almost like, um, I've got this picture of like, you, you bring them alongside to see the view that you have in your mind and you let them fall in love with it. And then they work their tails off to go get that. It's not, but, but if I say, Hey, I need you to go hundred miles this way. Don't worry about anything else. I need you. You got to go there right now. And you got to do this, this, and this. It's like, that's, that's not that exciting. That's not, there's nothing fun about that. There's nothing fulfilling or engaging about that. That's not going to be a place that I want to work. But if I've got somebody that says, Hey, I've got this idea and it looks like this, what do you think? And, and you, and I help them fall in love with that vision too, because now it's in their heart to do it. They want to show up every day because they're a part of something bigger than themselves. They're a part of something that's actually going to change dentistry as a whole. They catch a different vision for themselves and they show up to your practice differently. So I, I could probably talk all night about my mistakes and failures I think another one that, that I figured out along the way was um, I remember there was a time about six years ago that I was really, I was probably doing continuing education three weekends out of the month, wow. just really chasing it hard. And I was really starting to feel like I had a grasp and was holding a lot of things and was, was starting to understand it and felt like I was becoming a good dentist. And then I went to this course and I still remember it was this, they had these two functional medicine doctors and they were talking about the nutrition, about nutrition and the Krebs cycle. And I mean, it just went right over my head and I'm going, you've got to be kidding me. Like I, and, it, and I knew it was important stuff. So I, didn't, I couldn't just disregard it as I don't need to know that. It was like, no, this is really important stuff. And I'm like, it just freaked me out because I was at a point where I was really, really tired. I'd been chasing it so hard trying to become something that I was, I kind of lost the, um, the joy of the journey. And one of my good friends, Gary DeWood was at this meeting and I went up to him. I said, Gary, you got to help me. I'm struggling. And he's like, what's going on, Ryan? I'm glad to help. And I said, you've got to, I need to sit down with you and I need you to map out exactly what I need to do. Cause I got to get this. Mm -hmm. Basically I wanted him to make this efficient path 
for me to get to the end of this so that I could be finished. And I think a lot of newer dentists feel the same way about dental school. You finish dental school and you're tired and you cross the finish line and you're like, oh, I made it. And then you realize, oh shit, that's not even the end of the race. That's just the beginning of the race. And now you got to start learning all over again. And so you start running a little bit and you're like, I can do this. This is what I do. But I was at a point where I was like chasing this thing so hard. And so I said, Gary, you've got to help me set up a path so that I can get there faster. <laughs> and he's like, he's, he looked at me and he said, Ryan, where's there? And I was like, dang it. And I knew he had me already, but I, I, I saw, I kind of continued thing. I said, mastery. I want, I want to, I want to, I want to be a master at what I do. I want to, I want to, I want to achieve mastery in my, in my profession. He said, well, what does mastery look like? And I'm like, okay, I read a lot. So I remember reading a Malcolm Gladwell book and he said that, um, if you do anything for 10,000 hours, you can become, you can master it. And I said, well, it looks like probably 10,000 hours. And he said, that's debatable, but let's, for the sake of this argument, let's just say that that's true. The problem with dentistry is that sometimes you'll get, you'll get into something, maybe it's airway or, you know, like just, just pick some category of dentistry. You get 9,999 hours into it and something completely changes and you have to start over. Digital dentistry comes in. Like think about all the things that shift and change that change everything in dentistry. He said, he said, but Ryan, that's what makes it so fun. And I didn't like that answer at the time. I really, it didn't help me. I was still super depressed. It took me almost eight months to let those words sink in, but finally they, it sunk in. And I was like, oh my gosh, I finally understand what he was saying. And so I called him on the phone. I said, Gary, I got to tell you, I was pissed when we talked. Like what you told me was not helpful. And he did. He laughed when he when he said it. He actually put his arm around around me and he chuckled. He goes, "Ryan, I'm not sure if this is going to help you or not, but I got news for you. You're never going to be there. You're never going to get there. It doesn't exist." Like so when I was asking the question like I need you to help me get there, he said there doesn't exist. And it did. It ticked me off and I didn't like that answer because I was struggling as a as a young dentist that was, you know, financially stressed and traveling and away from family. And, but eight months later, I finally realized what he meant. And ever since then, I look at learning differently. It's not like I have to learn. It's like I get to learn. It's not, you know, I'm not good enough. I'm already, I'm, I'm already there. Like I'm already enough. So all the dentists, young dentists listening right now, you're enough right now. You don't have to go do anything or get anywhere to be enough. You're already enough. And the fact that you're in dentistry and dentistry is constantly evolving and changing and there's so many wonderful, amazing things that we can give our patients, you get to always be looking to learn and do more. It, it's never ending. There's not a ceiling. There's not, a, there's not an end of the race place to get to. Enjoy the journey the entire way through. And so... In terms of CE, don't chase it so hard and feel like you have to do this. No, enjoy it and realize that you can always do more. There will always be more. You're never going to be there, but that's, that's what makes dentistry so amazing. So it's actually made me learn and pick up things faster because there's less stress. I'm not stressed about learning it. I'm excited and I get to learn it. 
I love that. I think you just made some really good points that I want to break down. One is continuing education has been a big part of your career, right? Are there any courses that you would recommend for dentists to take so that they can become more successful or to improve their technique? Continuums. So in my mind, I like Panky, Spear, Kois, and Dawson. So all four of those, and I've done I've done two out of the four, and I'm really familiar with the others. They're they're all very similar in that they're going to teach you the four main competencies to to comprehensive care, which is aesthetics, function, structure, and biology. Dental school does a really good job of structure and biology. You know, you can diagnose a cavity, you can diagnose periodontal disease, you can diagnose whether a tooth needs endo or not. That's biology. Structure is, you know, crown versus a filling. Like, we all disagree about those things, but we basically all have our own philosophy in, in, in when to do a crown and when not to do a crown. Should we use zirconia or Emacs? Like, this is structural. So dental school does a really good job of, of what they call comprehensive dentistry being just a really deep dive into the biology and the structure. But the aesthetics or the facially generated treatment planning is where I think most young dentists need to spend more time because this is the foundation for every single person that walks in your office. If you can't get an appreciation and know where the teeth need to be in their face, you could potentially be starting a string of treatment that's going to fail or worse. It's just, it's going to make things even worse from a joint perspective. Um, and then, and then, so after, after like a facially generated or a global diagnosis is, is another term that's thrown out there a lot. It's all the same thing. Where do the teeth need to need to be in the face? So the aesthetics piece. And then the function piece is joint and muscles. Um, I, th- I think you have to respect the foundation. It's the foundation of all of this. If you, if you violate the envelope of function, you can do the most beautiful bonded veneers that Felipe ever taught you to do. But if you put them in a, in a constricted envelope of function and they develop severe TMD, well, that's not really good for the patient. They're going to grind their way out of them and break them and bust them, and it's going to be pretty for a year. So I think, I think those are the four major competencies to do any comprehensive dental, dental treatment. That's the only four. And all four of those places, Panky, Spiracois, and Dawson, do a really, really good job of, of helping young dentists systematically go through and become better at facially generated treatment planning, occlusion, and ultimately kind of like put it all together, I think, um, from a treatment planning perspective. Um, the, the fifth competency that I'll argue for, I think is kind of a new thing. It's not, it's not that new now, but some of the continuums are including it and that would be airway. So obviously airway plays a a huge role in a lot of these things now. So maybe there's an airway competency, but, but really historically that has not been a part of all of these continuums. It's just new. Um, but almost all four have adopted some version of airway as well, maybe with the exception of Koi C, looks at it a little differently. Um, but I think one of those four continuums is a really good starting place because you're going to get a comprehensive, streamlined approach to becoming a better dentist. And they're going to start from the beginning with, you know, facially generated smile design. And they're going to take you all the way through function, you know, joint considerations, how to fabricate appliances, how to find the, the right, the, the, 
what, you know, the play, how, where are you going to restore, store the patient to? Um, they're going to give you a good look at all the clinical tools that you need to be a really good dentist. One of the things I do quite frequently, if I have a patient that's moving to a different city and I don't really know a specific dentist in that city, I'll pull out one of my Panky or Spear books and see, I'll recommend a Panky or Spear dentist. Why? Because I kind of know foundationally where they're coming from and, and how they're looking at things. So I think those are some really good options. Um, the last thing that I would say for young dentists that to do is to balance that clinical education with personal growth and leadership. I tried, I try to encourage my associates to do 50, 50. So if you're going to take 18 hours of clinical, whatever, I want you to do 18 hours of, you know, John Maxwell leadership development or, you know what I mean? Like it's that important to me. I think, I think what I see a lot of in dentistry is a, a lot of highly trained, really, really good dentists that are frustrated because patients aren't doing the things that they see. So now you learn and you can see all these things, but you, you can't get patients to do them. You're going to be frustrated. So um, I've got dentists all the time tell me that they're overtrained and underscheduled. <laughs> For this leadership component, are you mentioned you know this proverb, the African proverb, which I think I read in a book recently, uh, Trust and Inspire. I don't know if you've read that same book by Covey. But are there any other leadership books that you would recommend for new dentists to read? It's funny you mentioned Covey. I love I love Stephen Covey. Um, the one I would recommend is Seven Habits by Covey. So Seven Habits is you know it's the Seven Habits of Highly Influential People. It's an old book, but it's a book that for me, if I pick it up every couple of years, I learn I learn at a different level some really important things. Um, I remember reading a book early on in my practice that really kind of helped me think differently, and that's called E-Myth. And I think they actually make an E-Myth book for dentists. I didn't read that one. I read the original. But it talks about working on your business, not in your business. So taking yourself outside of being a cog in the wheel and constantly having to work, 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 and being in your business and being able to pull yourself out from a 10,000-foot view and work on your business. In the Covey vernacular, he would call that quad two thinking. So that's like planning, um, thinking about, you know, setting goals, um, doing the things that we, quote unquote, never have time for. Because we constantly live in that quad one, which is putting out fires. We're always moving from fire Mm -hmm. to fire to fire. We're firefighters all day long. But if you can take, set the time aside to think about what you want, think about creating your vision, writing down your personal mission, starting to develop a a practice philosophy. Those are the things that are worth their weight in gold that people never get to because they're too busy. So we're doing too much clinical CE. We're, we, we live putting out fires. Patients, you know, don't know what to make of us because we don't know what to make of ourselves. We have no idea who we are because we don't spend time working on us. And then we, then we wonder why we're so stressed out and can't pay our student loans and, you know, don't know if we should do this thing or that thing. Um, one of the things I get asked a lot is, how do you know when opportunities come along, how do you know they're the right opportunities? And my answer to that is, if you're just, if, if an opportunity comes along and then you're going to start to try to figure out how it fits into your world, you're going to miss it. So I try to treat every opportunity as a closing window. That window's closing. It's not going to be open forever. But the more clear I can be about who I am and where I'm going and what my vision and mission are, 
I know it's the right thing. I can spot it from a mile away. So when it comes into my neighborhood, I'm like, oh, that's me. I'm doing that. I don't have to work. I don't have to ask a billion questions. I'm so clear about where I'm going. It makes perfect sense. You know, if you're riding along and you, and you break a wheel and somebody walks down and says, hey, I have a free wheel. Do you know you need a wheel? Yeah, you're clear. You, you, you just broke a wheel and it's amazing. I can't believe you just came along. I need a wheel. But if, but if you're not even on the bike, if the bike's in the garage and you're in the living room and somebody walks by with the wheel, you don't even have any idea. You didn't know the tire was flat in the garage. You haven't done the work. So if you, if you stay ready, it's about making yourself and keeping yourself ready. I stay ready. And what I mean by that is clear about where I'm going, clear about what I want from life, clear about who I want to be in the world. When I'm clear about those things, all the decision-making becomes super, super easy. I would say the same thing when people ask me, well, how do you do this and how do you do that? I go, you're asking the wrong question. The, the how becomes easy when the why is clear. Why do you want to do it? When you get super clear on why you do what you do and who you are, you'll know what to do. I've already said it. You're already enough. You already know. I've just got to get all the stuff out of the way so you can see that you're enough and that you already know. Is that wild? Is that too 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 crazy for people to realize? And I, and I do think that most people are going to be like, oh, I don't get that. Because most people don't spend very much time planning their life. They spend more time planning their next vacation than they do planning their future. That's absolutely true. I've I've only recently started to have this mentality shift and started to realize like I need to plan or work on myself, what the greater picture is and try to learn what is the life that I want to live, what it, what kind of person do I want to be and how can I achieve those things. So I don't know, I've been reading books like the 5 a.m. club and like getting myself together basically and it's all about mm-hmm. you know like looking forward and I and I feel like I've kind of like switched the light bulb on and now I feel like everyone else is on a different level like they don't see what life is the way I see what life could yeah. be you know they're too busy doing yeah and not busy enough becoming right but all of this takes work. and It's about becoming. Yeah, it's about becoming, and it's all about daily practices, right? Little by little, eventually, you, you become a, a more fuller version of yourself. So we're trying. We're trying, Ryan. I, well, I can, I, I'll give you some feedback. You're killing it. It, sh- it totally shows up. Like, the work that you're putting in shows up. Like, you're someone that I instantly, when I see at a course, like, I'm attracted to you. I'm attracted to your presence, your energy that you bring to it. You can just feel it. It feels different. Thank you. And for people like you and I that have done some of that work, it's easy to spot too, yeah. right? Is it not really easy to spot the people that are like living their values and they've done some of their work? Absolutely. Because like attracts like. Yeah. And that energy attracts. And and, and like it didn't take me like like two conversations with you to be like, there's so, there's something different about her. There's yeah. something deeper. There's something more. I want to I want to I want to know what that is. Yeah. Um, so. You're doing it. It's working. Thanks, Ryan. I appreciate that. I really do. It means a lot, honestly. And I'm glad this course brought us together because I'm learning a lot from you. And I just want to keep you in my circle. Before we close out, are there any platforms that you're on where people can connect with you? Tell me about Inspiro, how they can find it. Or do you have an Instagram page? Tell me. Yeah, so... I'm on Instagram. It's Ryan Kulon DDS, R Y A N C O U L O N D D S. 
um, reach out, message me. I'm always, I'm always um, looking to engage with dentists anywhere. Um, I really do have a passion for people, and I do love my profession. I'm in the greatest profession on earth, and I really do want to help people that are searching for something more. I'm not looking to help everybody just be a great dentist clinically. I want, I'm, I'm looking to help people that want to be something more. And so um, you can find me on there and message me. Um, I would encourage you to go to inspiroteam.com, I-N-S-P-E-R-O team.com. Um, you can really read about who we are and what we do. There's a, obviously a list of workshops and things coming up. I know we're doing a new patient experience in the fall. I don't have the date, but that's coming up. We just finished an EI in Houston, I think about a month ago, just a couple weeks before Felipe's course. Um, we did we did the EI course. We may do another one in the fall as well. I think there's a lot of people that are looking to to do that. I'm trying to think what other what other platforms you can find me on. I mean, I've I've done I've done different podcasts. There's I'm out there a little bit, but I wouldn't say I I'm out there as much as I want to be out there to be honest. And I and I started to say no more and shut things down. So um, this was a unique opportunity for me. Because because I, I know your audience and I know you and I really wanted to connect with you again. And so it was exciting for me to, to say yes to this because I've, I've been saying no a lot because I, I, I have to honor my vision and know that not every opportunity is a good opportunity. Some of them are distractors, man. They're distracting you from where you need to go. A hundred percent. And so learning to say no is just as important as being ready to jump through that closing window. Yeah, that's another lesson I recently so, learned. Learn to say no, <laughs> but got to. yeah. But I appreciate you coming on. I know you're a busy man, and you need you. I mean, this takes time out of your schedule. So thank you for coming on and and speaking to us and giving us your golden nuggets. Um, I'm sure maybe down the line, because there's so much to talk about with you, we can maybe do something else in the future. Well, I don't always answer the question, but I always respond. So. I'm happy to come on and, and answer more questions. I don't know if I did or said what you were hoping I would say, but for, for me, it's, you know, um, they're, they're the things that for me, I wish somebody would have helped me understand earlier on. Yeah. So the sooner you can learn some of these harder lessons, the sooner you can go just go to greatness and not have to stub your toe as much. And I don't want people to stub their toes. I want them to, to become all that God's created them to be. Yeah as quickly as possible and realize how amazing they already are. So, and that's the whole, thank you for having yeah, me. I of course. It. And that's the whole point of this podcast to give people the opportunity to, to learn faster because a lot of us are isolated. We live, we live in, we work in silo. We don't have a mentor and we see a lot of things on Instagram that show us amazing dentists or money making dentists. And we're mm-hmm. like, Oh, I'm not there yet. Cause I'm a new, new dentist. And like, I'm I'm behind. And so this is the whole point of this conversation is just to help each other out. Comparison is the thief of joy. Yes. Another <laughs> great quote. <laughs> you you know who you should compare yourself to? Who? This is the only person I compare myself to. The version that I was yesterday. Every day I want to be a little bit better than I was yesterday. So if you want to play the comparison game, play it with who you were yesterday. Yeah. And try to be a little bit better than you were yesterday. And like you said, stack those habits. Do those things one day after another after another. You do that long enough, you'll look back in 10 years and you'll be like, holy cow. 
people overestimate what they can do in a, in a year. Mm -hmm. They think they can do more than they can. And they always underestimate what they can do in a decade. Yeah. Yeah. So focus on creating a vision, figuring out what your core values are, what you, what you want to bring to the world, and start to get a little bit better each and every day. And five years from now, your life's going to look completely different than it looks today in a good way. So intentionally leading yourself is massive. And you're on your way. I can't wait to see what you do too. So Thank you. Don't be a stranger. I won't be it. Ryan, thanks so much. I love our conversations, and I'm sure our listeners enjoyed that too. If you've been keeping up with our podcast, write a review, share your thoughts. Love to know who you'd like us to interview. This is a community for you. Till next time, cheers. Cheers.